It's time for security now. Steve Gibson's here. He's going to take a look at Twitter's new Do Not Track policy and answer 10 questions from you, his listeners. All next on Security Now. Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Audio bandwidth for security now is provided by the new Winamp for Android, featuring wireless sync and one-click iTunes import. Now with free daily music downloads and full-length CD listening parties. Download it for free at winamp.com slash Android. Video bandwidth for security now is provided by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 354, recorded May 23rd, 2012. Your questions, Steve's answers, number 144. Security Now is brought to you by GoToAssist. GoToAssist from Citrix helps you take control of your IT world from one simple cloud-based platform. Provide live or unattended support to all your users anywhere. Sign up for your 30-day free trial today at GoToAssist.com. Click the Try It Free button and use the offer code SECURITY. And by Ford, giving customers the power of choice with a full line of electric and hybrid electric vehicles. Learn more about Ford Electric Vehicle Technologies at Ford.com slash technology. And by Squarespace.com, the fast and easy way to create a high-quality website or blog. For a free trial and 10% off your first purchase on new accounts, go to squarespace.com and use the offer code SECURITYNOW5. And don't forget, they offer free domain registration with annual plan subscriptions. It's time for Security Now. Here he is, the ketogenic Steve Gibson, our explainer-in-chief and security guru from grc.com, the author of SpinRight, the world's best hard drive and maintenance utility, and uh, many other great freebies. And Today's a Q&A, right, Steve? Yeah, we have our 144th, so that's 12 wow. squared, for those of you who are math people. Ooh, ooh. Uh, our Q&A on episode 354, and uh, a bunch of interesting news, great questions from our listeners, uh, a little bit of uh, errata, paraphernalia stuff. So uh, overall, I think we're going to have a really nice podcast. You know, it's it's uh, people, I, I, maybe I just uh, don't usually get the email, but more and more I'm getting tweets and email from people saying, Oh, I got something for Steve. I got something for Steve. They really, uh, uh, and I see you have some of this, the last pass wallet and so forth. People people really are kind of, uh, I think, really starting to know about the show, which we like. I, I don't, yes, I don't know. And maybe it's my participation in um, in Twitter, but I get I think a so. ton. I get a ton of stuff from people who are tweeting, and I am noticing that I think my message about, you know, please follow me if you want a response because I'm, I mean, I, I read every single tweet that I get. It's sitting here, like right in front of me right now, this huge spread of, uh, you know, in tweet deck of all these columns coming in. So <laughs> you're crazy. <laughs> it is. Yeah, it's a little but much. I, but I think that might but, have something to do with it. I really do. I think the more you engage the social networks, the more they engage back, you know. Yeah, and I have to say, somebody said, did, did tweet to me, Steve, you're really missing out not being in Google+. And, you know, mm. I'm kind of there, but I don't know what it is. I mean, I kind of looked at it and I didn't I didn't know what it was. It's so more thought, of a well, long form Twitter. If you wanted to do longer posts and uh, engage in conversations about that post because it has threaded responses, then it's it's, uh, you know, it's similar. Same idea, you know. 
Yeah, I like. I, it. I love the. I love the fact that I. I'm limited, and so are they, because it's there's like, well, we can't ha- yeah. can't have a conversation. But yeah, here's, you may, you know, yeah, in here's that a, case, you may not, here's a link. <laughs> you may not like Google Plus all that much. Hey, we're going to get to the uh, the first uh, uh, few uh, uh, news items in just a moment. Before we do, I do want to talk a little bit about. Uh, our friends at Citrix. I just uh, completed a, a webinar, actually, Steve, which will be available for download uh, a little later on. On um, for employers who hire young people, it was it was really interesting. Chris Perillo was on it uh, with me, uh, and uh, an expert in this uh, subject, Paul Glenn. It was really, I thought, a very engaging uh, uh, seminar. We used GoToWebinar, which is one of their great products. I'm a big fan, uh, as you know, of Citrix in general. One of the things I like about their philosophy is that they do, you know, uh, it's a subscription uh, model. So you pay a monthly fee. and uh, and But as a part of that, you automatically get all these updates and improvements. And I'll tell you, uh, this benefits you immensely. Uh, for instance, if you're using GoToAssist, we've talked about GoToAssist before. That is the, uh, the program that lets you um, remotely support uh, clients. Uh, it's great for IT people. Very fast, easy to use. It has unattended support. It has a lot of features for IT support. Well, they've upgraded it. And now, if you're using GoToAssist, you might notice there's also monitoring built in. And I got to tell you, this is incredible. So, in addition to the remote support module, they have a monitoring module, which lets you keep an eye on the assets, not only an inventory of all the assets, including PCs, Macs, network equipment, Things like printers, hard drives, wireless access points. You can monitor servers. You can track network uh, usage. You can, you even, it's, you get alerts for simple things too, like the toner cartridge almost empty on printer 7 at a client 43. And one of the nice things about that is you can be much more proactive in your support. Clients report, hey, this is amazing. We never have a problem anymore. And it's because you're no, you know, you're keeping an eye on things remotely. Our IT guy, uh, Russell Tammany of Exponentia Systems, has been using it. Uh, we asked him, hey, you know, what do you think? Try it out. Loves it. He manages three people, 855 clients, manage, manage support using this technology. It's really patch management, automation. Uh, I can go on and on. I want you to try this free for 30 days. If you're in the support business, you really need to know about this. Uh, it really makes your job a lot easier. Intended for the support pro, of course. Um, discover and inventory all your IT assets, including software. Assure servers are up and running 24-7. Track the performance of your networks, your computers, your servers. Visualize and manage your entire infrastructure. Set up customized alerts when critical thresholds are passed. Document emerging issues and the need for network changes. It couldn't be better. I want you to try it right now. Visit the website. Go to assist.com. You'll notice immediately it's, it's changed quite a bit. Uh, they have really, this is a major upgrade. And by the way, they're celebrating now 10 plus years doing this. 10 plus years as a uh, software as a service. Use the offer code SECURITY for 30 days free. We'll get credit for that. Go to assist.com. Offer code SECURITY. Try it free. And by the way, if you like them on Facebook, they've got a contest right now. They're giving away 10 uh, Android tablets. So you can like Go to Assist on Facebook as well, and you'll uh, be in that drawing. Go to assist.com. Offer code SECURITY. We thank them so much for their support of Security Now. Really a, really a fantastic company. I'm very proud to be associated with.
All right, Steve, I've got your uh, notes. I'm ready to uh, kick things off, starting so, with Twitter, of all things. Yep. Um, there was a nice explanation, which I want to share with our listeners, uh, actually sort of the, the meaty beginning of it, uh, posted by uh, someone from the Electronic uh, Frontier Foundation, the EFF, that is our privacy watch guard uh, nonprofit group that is doing so much good stuff. Um, explaining exactly what Twitter's recent announcement that they are going to support the do not track header, which is increasingly available in browsers. Um, Microsoft's IE has it in a sort of an A flavor. There's an, it's not yet supported natively in Chrome, but there's an add-on that you can get for Chrome that will add the, the DNT header to Chrome queries, and it, it is and has been supported in Firefox for some time. So the EFF, EFF guy wrote, and this is there's some really interesting tech stuff here. Under a new under a new policy announced recently, Twitter will be suggesting accounts for Twitter users to follow based on data collected from an individual's browsing habits on websites that have embedded Twitter buttons. Okay, so let's stop for a second. What that means is this is exactly the third-party cookie issue that we've talked about often. That is to say when, uh, you know, you're a Twitter user, so your browser will have a Twitter cookie associated with it. Then when you go to non-Twitter sites that have the embedded Twitter button in the page. When your browser displays that, that page from that website and displays the Twitter button, it is sending a query back to the Twitter servers containing the Twitter cookie, which in this context, since you're actually on a different site, that's technically a third-party cookie. But what that means is that Twitter is able to track you, your movements around the net. This is... this Ooh, is. We're going to hear howls. Yeah, I know. That I know. is huge. It is. But what, what it then means is that when you go back to Twitter, it knows where else you have been and is then able to recommend people to for you to follow that are relevant to what they're determining about you. Now, so, is, that's only if you use the Twitter in the browser. Yes, I think that... Because that, if, yes, if you were would, using a Twitter app, especially one that Twitter didn't write, like, you, well, you use TweetDeck, which is a Twitter company, but um, I presume there's no way they would be able to track you. Maybe they would, I don't know. Uh, they, they could certainly, I mean, there are cookies associated with your account, and it might be that, like, the Twitter apps, which are not browser clients, are also transacting the same cookie. Yeah, it might be part of they, the API. Who knows? Because you're logged in, and they know right. who you are. Right. And so they could certainly, you know, give give that uh, that identity. So, um, they, so EFF continuing says... While this is sure to garner scrutiny, <clears throat> exactly as you said, Leo. And howls. <laughs> yeah. uh -huh, from the press and public, 
Twitter is also taking a pioneering step toward respecting users' privacy choices. It has committed to respecting Do Not Track, a simple browser setting users can turn on to tell websites they don't want to be tracked. Often framed as a signal from users to behavioral advertisers, Do Not Track isn't actually about ads we see online. It's about user control over tracking of our web usage that could be used to build an intimate portrait of our online lives. Twitter is showing an inventive way that websites other than behavioral advertisers can respect Do Not Track. We are heartened, and this is the EFF that isn't often heartened by anything, we're heartened to see this forward-thinking approach and hope other sites, well, of course, we know what this is. This is also Twitter recognizing the controversial nature of this and, and being preemptive about offering some choice to users who are concerned about this from a, from a tracking and privacy standpoint. We're heartened to see this forward-thinking approach and hope other sites with embedded widgets will follow suit. Because think about it. All of these sites that have little embedded buttons that we're now seeing everywhere, they're all doing this too. Um, but perhaps being much less forthcoming than at this point Twitter is. If you haven't already done so, this is a great reminder to turn on Do Not Track. Twitter has a tutorial for doing this on different browsers. Here's how the suggested accounts will work under the new Twitter privacy policy. When you browse around the internet to pages with embedded Twitter share buttons, Twitter is able to collect a certain amount of information about you through a unique browser cookie. And remember, it's not just that you were there, but because it will contain the, ref the full referrer header, it's also how you got there. So they, they know, for example, if you were searching for something and clicked on a search link, what typically what the search query was. I mean, there's, there's a lot of information that these third parties get. And so Twitter is setting themselves up by having these embedded Twitter buttons to collect all of this when people go anywhere to, to, uh, to third-party sites. Um, Twitter is able to collect a certain amount of information about you through a unique browser cookie. When you sign up for or log on to Twitter, the site will be able to suggest that you follow the accounts of individuals who are popular among others who visited the same sites as you. So now we're getting the sort of the social networking thing. It's, gee, you know, people who also have the same sort of site visiting profile are following these people. Twitter can, of course, see who you're following. So they're able to pull that information not only from you but from others and cross-correlate it and say, hey, you know, here's some people that are maybe relevant now, to are, you. Are these paid advertising? I mean, my question is, if it's just doing a better job of suggesting, okay, are, but are they paid advertisements would be my question. No, it's just improving its suggestion well, I technology. Don't anything, I'm not sure if I see anything wrong with that. I mean, I, no, I agree. Um, you can ignore the so, suggestions, and if it really does give you suggestions that are, you know, good based on things you're interested in, like it just suggested Yoko Ono and Michelle Obama to me and Jimmy Kimmel and Nathan Fillion. I mean, I, I yeah, I would like to be following those people. So, 
I don't know if is this implemented now or is it going to be implemented? No, it's in place now. Okay. So Twitter calls this tailoring in quotes your Twitter experience based on your web browsing history. Seems good. For, I know. I think it is. For example, many of those who visit boingboing.net right. likely follow the account of Doctoro, the digital rights-loving boingboing founder Corey Doctoro. Right. If you sign up for Twitter and you've got a browser cookie from Twitter showing that you recently, and this is a key to about to talk about expiration, that you recently visited boingboing, you might see at Doctoro listed as a suggested user even before you've started interacting with Twitter. So that is to say it can know things even before you, you get going. Twitter will be relying on data collected from your browsing habits within the last 10 days. Mm. After 10 days, they start discarding data. When you start a Twitter account, you'll have the option to turn off the tailored suggestions. Unchecking this box won't just stop the suggestions from appearing. It'll actually remove the unique cookie that Twitter uses to track your browsing habits and show you tailored user suggestions. That's good. And that's, oh, they've really done it right. And that's right in the UI. It's a checkbox. You can say, you know, I want this or not. Established Twitter users may find suggested users under the who to follow sections of home and discover. Just like new users, established users can uncheck the tailor Twitter box in their account settings to stop the data collection about their web browsing. Do not track makes this a lot simpler. No messing with account settings or unchecking any boxes to keep your privacy. If you've already got do not track selected in your browser settings, then Twitter assumes you just don't want them collecting details of your online browsing habits in an identifiable way. Users who have turned on do not track will find upon signing up for Twitter that the Taylor Twitter button is automatically unchecked by wow. default. Wow. I mean, I know they've really done a nice job. Similarly, Established users who had Do Not Track already enabled in the days before the new policy took effect will also find the account personalization turned off by default. Users who enable Do Not Track must change their privacy settings manually if they want the tailored Twitter experience to be re-enabled. Now, there is a textbook example of doing everything right. I mean, just across the board. And and this is why, as our listeners know, I have been so bullish about this from the beginning, about the do not track header. You know, everyone argues, yeah, but it doesn't really do anything. You know, it doesn't block anything. It just says, it's like, yes, but this is the way we're going to get there. Because, you know, maybe it'll get enacted through legislation or maybe it'll get enacted through this kind of social pressure. But I mean, Twitter doing it right sets a template for how to do it, you know, and Twitter's not small. So they're offering a real benefit, as you identified, Leo, like, like wow, you know, this does provide Twitter with valuable insight, yet it gives the users absolute control and it, and if we have 
taken the time to turn on do not track, it respects that. And if we want then to to have the, the benefit of Twitter knowing more about us so that it can make better suggestions and we're wanting to mature our follow lists, then we go and turn that on. It's just, it's beautiful. So I hope this is a, an example of the future because, you know, this is the way it, it, it should be done. And it's all we need if everybody does this. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Is there so, any, can you think of any negative, uh, I mean, if of leaving it on, uh, you know, I mean, there's the... Well, the, the I guess the presumptive privacy invasion, but but are there maybe hidden consequences we're not aware of? Mm, well, okay, so you know the skeptics will say, oh well, what do we? How do we know Twitter's not selling this information? It's like, well, you know, you you've got their privacy policy. Um, they don't they don't want to get sued. Privacy is an inc- is an increasingly large concern i mean thanks to facebook that keeps stumbling with privacy you know it you know everyone is learning people really are are caring about this so i i i don't think a company is going to say one thing and do another that would just hurt them too much and then you know these things do get discovered you know employees leaving or mistakes being made it's like wait a minute you said you weren't collecting this now some hacker just you know got a database of five hundred thousand records that, that, that has this so you know what gives you know very much the way google got caught uh you know flat-footed with collecting all of the unsecured wi-fi information you know they really didn't intend to use it for anything but they had it so i i my feeling is do not track may become too powerful i mean i'm I, what i'm looking for now is is the equivalent of no script for do not track, where I can say, I can like have my, you know, I can have my default be not to track me, but some sites like Twitter, I may want to track me. Right. So in the same way that I want some sites to run scripts on my browser, but I don't want them all by default to run it. So I imagine we're, we're going to see that evolve in time as people support do not track. We're going to want to say, well, I can't keep turning it on and off all the time. I just, I need to selectively permit tracking. But, you know, again, this is this is where we're headed. This is the future. So bravo to Twitter. If we've got any Twitter people listening, you know, I mean, they just really did it right. Um, meanwhile, a Trojan that we never covered, and I'm not sure why we didn't. I just probably had too many things to talk about that week, um, is the is the so-called DNS changer Trojan. And it would have been a perfect topic for us, so we'll briefly cover it now. It's something which has affected hundreds of thousands, if not maybe a million computers, and it's rather clever. It, it, and we have all the understanding, thanks to the podcast's history, to, to get a grip on what this thing does. It's a piece of malware which can infect people's machines and and its action is to change their def- their system's default dns servers to malicious dns servers and you know our listeners know what that means that means all the lookups you do are subject to bad guys messing with the ips that your browser receives in return so 
mean, we've talked about like DNS server hijacking where the bad guys pollute the records of a given DNS server. And that's bad because then everyone using that DNS server who looks up a specific domain gets pointed at the wrong IP for all kinds of mischief. Well, this is like way worse. This is your entire computer. And in some cases, DNS changer is able to go in and, and using, unfortunately, you know, uh, default logins and um, sometimes universal plug and play that we've warned everyone to turn off are able to get into your router and change your router's DNS that then affects all the machines in your network. So even though only one machine gets infected, your entire network is now receiving malicious DNS replies from these bad servers. So, so this allowed people to do ad hijacking and get up to all kinds of mischief with people. The, um, the bad guys were found uh, back in November of 2011, so about, what, six or seven months ago, and they were located in Estonia. Um, they were arrested, and the people who do bind, the, you know, the major DNS server on the Internet, uh, ISC, were given control of this set of rogue DNS servers. So you know, here's the problem. All of these machines, more than a half a million right now, today, more than 500,000 are still querying these malicious DNS servers. The problem is that the judge that, that um, was involved with this originally set a March time frame for the DNS servers to be taken down. They're still up and running, um, although now they're under benign control. So, so they're not delivering malicious results. But more than half a million people, networks and computers are using them. So if they're shut off, everybody who's still using them loses all their internet connectivity and has no idea why. You know, when, they, when I read about this, I, I meant to ask you about it. It seemed like it was a terrible idea in the first place to replace them. It was, it was uh, so people were still hacked, right? But they, but instead of pointing to a malicious DNS server, it was an FBI-run DNS server. Well, actually, as I understand it, they were the DNS servers that were just, they were the DNS servers taken over. So right. they were they were once malicious, but they were reloaded with good records, and so you know in order to depollute them. Well, I don't know if it was the same machine or not. It's the same IP address. Okay. Well, yeah, exactly. It doesn't really matter. But, but, yeah. but wouldn't it have been better just to turn them off and say, and in other words, people have been hacked and you're kind of hiding the fact that they've been hacked. And it bothered me that the FBI decided that this was the way to handle it. I agree. It's sort of a strange, like, I mean, this is unique as far as I know, in, in terms of like the way we've, we've dealt with and mitigated this problem. I thought it was so, appallingly stupid. But So what Google has figured out is that their, their page, their servers, are able with very high accuracy and negligible false positives to detect when anyone visiting their site is currently has the malware installed and or is 
pointing at the wrong DNS servers. And they are going to, in fact, I think maybe they have now, begun notifying everyone who has got this problem who visits Google. That's at least um, at least they'll be notified. I mean, they've been sitting there for four months with a with, and you know the thing is, if you have DNS changer, you probably have other malware on your system. And what would have been better is just to turn it off, and suddenly the system stops working, and the person goes, "Oh my, something's wrong," and gets it fixed. Instead, they've been yes. going along for four months with presu- I would be willing to guess in ninety percent of the cases, malware infested systems that seem to work all right. Right, and what happened was that. This March deadline was extended uh, to July 9th, which is, so this is, you know, where are we? We're um, uh, May, June, July. So it's coming up in another six weeks. Um, So it's been extended because too many people were still using them. Now, ISPs, ISPs were supposed to take responsibility, but ISPs, you know, didn't for whatever reason. Um, Clearly, you know, ISPs could have could have put up intercept pages or, you know, noticed when their customers were, were were making DNS queries to these specific IPs and sent them something in the mail. I mean, you know, there there are many things that could have happened, but it just didn't happen. And so Google has said, okay, um, it's multilingual because uh only fifty percent of the affected users are English speakers. The other fifty located all over the globe are non-English speakers. So Google has had to do this um, in, in a multi-language solution. Also, Google has said in their blog posting they would, you know, they would like to be doing helpful things like this all they can, except that they're not often enough, as, and not as often as they would like, able to, to be accurate enough in their in their determination of problems. You know, we've seen at Google, for example, now warning people on links that are believed to be malicious. Right. It's like, wait, you know, you know, this looks like this is this site is hosting malicious content. You know, do you want are you sure you want to go there? So you you click it, you get an intercept page saying, oh, uh, ooh, thanks for you know catching that. Um, in this case, they have de- developed the technology that will have sufficiently like near zero false positive and they've been testing it long enough to know that they'll be able to deliver more than half a million of these notices within one week wouldn't it have been better if the fbi had just uh, put up changed the server in such a way that it redirected you a single page that said you have malware on your system that's exactly that's exactly what I think. And then I didn't sh- know why any query didn't didn't bounce you to an FBI site specifically to present prevent to present you with that notice. In, in effect, that- the FBI has perpetrated a man in the middle attack on on hundreds of thousands of machines for the last six months. Drives me crazy. Yeah. I don't. It yeah. doesn't make any sense. And by the way, if you go to the uh, DNS Changer Working Group, which is an FBI front, uh, they they actually. <laughs> get- I'm a little pissed off. They give you really loose, useless information, uh, and have you know buttons that say "fix it." Uh, it's um, it's just stupid. Uh, yeah. First thing you want to do is uh, <laughs> they they give you clean how to clean your PC against DNS changer, and um, I just I feel like now actually this. This has gotten better than it was when they first announced this about a month ago. I, what? What? 
you know, it just seems suspicious to me that they didn't they didn't do that. That they they decided to keep it running for a while. You know, we'll we'll do your DNS for you. Just uh, <laughs> trust as, us, as you were. Speaking of trust us, RSAs. I'm I'm really tempted to put the the uh, syllable in in front of secure ID, making it insecure <laughs> ID. Windows software tokens are deep in the doghouse. Now we've talked about the hardware tokens extensively. You know the little dongles. We you know we were pioneering the uh, the PayPal football or and eBay logon. You know the the famous football for preventing for, for providing third party security. I of course love what YubiKey has done with their little one time USB token. So RSA couldn't resist doing this in software. Well, it turns out that we have another classic example of good crypto implemented poorly. Not the crypto's fault. The architectures are absolutely solid as could be. Um, but it turns out that their Windows, they have a Windows version of their secure ID token so that people who don't want the dongle can install this software. Now, already we know, whoops, you know, bad idea. The whole point of the dongle is well one is portability so you have cross cross machine portability but the other is that it's not connected to anything it's i mean it's not in your system you know the yubikey is safe because it just emulates a keyboard it will not receive any any commands to to allow to allow it to dump its information even using the yubikey ui technology you can't get that information it will not give it up so they you know those guys did it right RSA said, oh, well, let's sell people a software token. Think of all the money we'll make. Well, turns out that a security researcher discovered that the serial number, the, the required token's secret serial number is simply determined by a combination of the machine's host name and the current user's Windows security identifier, which is stored in the computer. So busted completely. It means that if any software is able to get into your machine and you have one of these, it can instantly clone your secure ID and at will generate exactly the same sequence of supposedly cryptographically secure, but, you know, cryptographically generated now, but no longer secure, um, six-digit numbers that the secure ID software does. So it's completely reverse engineered, and the, the we hoped it would be secret serial number turns out not to be. It's derivable from information sitting right there in the machine. So... Whoops. And, you know, there's only 40 million people using this. So. Oh, jeez. Mm -hmm. So this is, is this in Windows? Is this, uh, who's using this? Uh, what? This, is in, this is in Windows. How Probably, would you know if you're using it? Oh, you would, you would be a user 
who who periodically calls this up and it comes up in a little it's got its own little windows ui with a little screen that shows you your current our secure ID six digit oh, token. Okay, so it's like so that the, Google, uh, the Google Authenticator, or the football the VeriSign provides. Same right? idea. It's same and exact. I mean, it's the ex- same algorithm, Just same poorly everything. Implemented. Well, written in software, and for example, they didn't use the trusted platform module. The TPM that's in most laptops um, is sitting there for this purpose. But someone said, "Oh well." Most people don't have that turned on. Right. Most or people aren't it. using it and, right. or don't have it. So, you know, we won't use it. But what they could have done is, you know, arbitrarily created a non-derived pseudo-random number through some handshake. I mean, again, it's difficult to see how you can protect this. This is fundamentally a bad idea. Well, that's what makes run- you wonder. I mean, Google Authenticator software on my mobile device. So I wonder if it has well, the same flaw. Well, and I've got I've got a VeriSign, um, you know, VIP token on my BlackBerry, which is able to generate s- numbers for me to log in in Windows. Right, right. But those are th- those are separate platforms. So I mean, it, you know, it's certainly the case that doing this in software on a shared software environment mm. will not be as secure as as any little piece of hardware that is just all it's going to do is give you numbers. So, but the trade-off is convenience. Right. But, but again, putting it in Windows and then you know yeah. for using logging it, into Windows, yeah, <laughs> right, right. right. <laughs> or your corporate VPN, right. I mean, you know, you just so the point is, this is a this is a a huge vulnerability for anyone who depends upon it for security. It simply never was secure, and now that the world knows how to hack it. Um, and all the details have been posted. It's it's just blown. It's just completely blown. You you know if your if your machine ever got any ever got infected, your Windows machine, the malware could grab that data trivially, send it off to wherever, and they now have the ability to generate the same secret token, the same token stream as you do. And you know there went the security and the authentication. And, you know everything. It's it purports to provide dumb you know i mean it's just it's just a bad idea to 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 offer that on a uh, yeah. on a yeah. on windows platform yeah now in happy news lastpass has released a free secure wallet for ios devices i saw that yeah and it looks very nice um it's built around the existing lastpass feature called Secure Notes, which LastPass has always had. You know, LastPass for our browsers can store more than just user ID and login. You can have it store notes for you also. Um, in, the, in the case of Wallet, which is 100% free forever, it also, it, 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 it comes with a, set, a series of templates for credit cards, passports, driver's license, memberships, bank accounts, and a bunch of more things. Um, current LastPass users, as so many of our listeners are, can log in with their usual account information. So this is sort of like a, it's a client for your existing LastPass account and entire database. And any existing secure notes 
will automatically be synced to the wallet where they could be viewed, edited, and synced back to, you know, through the cloud to all other locations. What does it mean when a baby toy goes off? <laughs> That's my phone. I forgot to silence it. Your, it's my your telephone it's, is a squeak toy? Yeah, it's a squeaky toy. Okay. Yeah. That's just generic, unfiltered incoming email. It just makes me laugh, and and anyone who I'm who I'm like at lunch with or something will laugh. Oh, I'm laughing. Heck, yeah. And so audio clips, photos, and text can be saved as an attachment to any note. Um, you can use the app itself to record voice clips and securely store pictures from your device's uh, photo gallery. Um, and in a blog, uh, in the announcement blog, our old friend. Uh, Joe uh, Segrist, who uh, gave me all the information back in the day when I was able to fully vet LastPass and adopt it for myself and recommend it without hesitation, he responded to somebody who was grumbling about you know, why they didn't do it for Android first. And he, he responded saying, the reason Apple was first here is that Apple does not allow us to do a free trial. So it appeared that the best way around that problem was simply to give away something free that instead of like a trial period to give away something free that gives people a taste of what the full last pass does on their Apple device. When you tell your friends at a party that they should be using LastPass, Wallet is a good place to get started if you're an iOS user. We really had nothing for that case. Before, uh, before for the Apple platform. So that was, you know, Joe, the main technologist guy there, explaining why. And uh, which, you know, makes a lot of sense to me. I just a minute ago uh, grabbed it. I haven't gonna play with it yet, but I've got it now added to my various iOS devices. And, um, you know, I trust these guys. I, I, I know they know how to do it right and the importance of getting it right. Um, and, and so I wanted to let everyone know that this looks like just a, a, a pure and simple win, especially if you're already a LastPass user, you know, to have an iPhone interface or an iPad interface. And in the anonymous mailbag, I found something coincidental that I thought I would share. Uh, um, from a Richard S. in Burbank, who the subject of what he sent me was Elaine's transcripts extremely useful. And he said, Dear Steve, just an anecdote demonstrating how useful it is to have the transcripts that you have asked Elaine to produce. I was sitting at a research retreat with a very computer savvy MD who was trying, who I'm sorry, who was typing his secure password into our institutional VPN. I asked him whether he knew about LastPass. He said no. I explained it to him and showed him my one-click login to our VPN. He was impressed and asked if it was secure. And I said, yes, absolutely. The computer-savvy MD sitting next to him said that LastPass had been breached. I said no, but MD number one started Googling the issue and getting alarming hits. So I googled LastPass breach Steve Gibson GRC and immediately hit the transcript for episode 301, which I forwarded to him. He read it and downloaded LastPass, an invaluable resource. Awesome. Well, I'm so grateful that uh, you pay for that. 
and uh, that Elaine does it. It's really, a, it is, it's a huge, if we had the money, we'd do it for every one of our shows. It's a huge value. Thank you. Well, and, you know, not only is it, as as we've just said, um, well, you know, the the primary motivation was that people like to read along right. or to sometimes read and not listen. So that this, this gives them an option. But the other obvious thing that's happening is it makes our otherwise audio podcasts or video podcasts searchable right you can find them and you know so you know you you could yes you could then download the transcript or it finds the audio and or video for you also so very cool excellent point um an anonymous listener also said steve don't switch to mac just for arc <laughs> um this is my notes from the cloud section um i just i saw that and that piqued my interest that was the subject line in the mailbag so i dug in because it's funny i you know i had i i i tweeted that arc was so good arc for the mac was so good as a really nice front end for the amazon's s3 that you know it, it made me want to switch and so he said it was great to watch you zero in on the right architecture for cloud backup a Fault-tolerant, pay-as-per-usage storage backend like S3. B, a trustworthy front-end with strong crypto implementation like Arc. But there is still hope for PC users and Linux and Macs, too. Check out www.duplicati.com. D-U-P-L-I-C-A-T-I.com. Everything you talked about, ARC, and cross-platform, open-source, non-Java, native code, plus plugins to many multiple backends. Would love to hear your analysis on any crypto and other weaknesses possible in Duplicati code and architecture. I love it that it's open-source. I do, too. Yeah. So, under features, they list... Duplicati uses AES-256 encryption or new GNU Privacy Guard to secure all data before it is uploaded. So it's pre-egress encryption, pre-internet encryption. Duplicati uploads a full backup initially, then stores smaller incremental updates afterwards to save bandwidth and storage space. And on their pages, they, they go into some detail about how this is done. A scheduler, a scheduler keeps backups up to date automatically. Encrypted backup files are transferred to targets like FTP servers, cloud files, WebDAV, SSH through uh, SFTP, Amazon S3, and others. Duplicati allows backups of folders, document types, for example, documents or images, or custom filter rules. It's available as an application with an easy-to-use user interface and as a command-line tool. Oh, 100% free, by the way, if I didn't mention that already. Um, well, you pay for the storage. Yes, but not for the front end. Right. Duplicati can make proper backups of opened or locked files using the Volume Snapshot service, VSS, under Windows, or the Logical Volume Manager, LVM, under Linux. Interesting. And then it gets better from their how-to Duplicati is built using standard tools and formats. Unencrypted archives are simple zip archives. Encrypted archives are zip archives that can be decrypted with AES crypt. So even without Duplicati, they said 
all your data are belong to you. Great. So, and it supports one-on-one smart drive, Amazon S3, backup.action, box.net, CloudSafe, DriveOnWeb, Google Drive, SkyDrive, Strato High Drive, Tahoe LAFS, whatever that is, and T-Online Median Center. So I'm very impressed. Uh, there are future plans there at one po- version 1. Point blah, blah, blah. Their 2.0 will, be at, will add running as a service so that the whole thing can run when you're not logged in. Um, doesn't need to, to, to you know, run as a, as a user-launched um, app. Um, and they're also going to re-engineer the UI. So everything about this thing looks right. And uh, so, you know, I want to let all of our listeners know that thanks to an anonymous uh, mailbox uh, person, we have a knowledge of yet one more interesting, you know, multi-back-end, front-end. There's just an infinite number of these, it seems. (laughs) Yeah, well, it's just, yeah. And here again, this is, you know, this is, this fits my model. My feeling is... This is not something that people should charge for. That is the privilege of having a front end to Amazon S3. It ought to be free. Right. There's just not enough value added to make it to make it something you ought, you know that you should pay for. Um, I wanted to mention uh, in a GRC R and D update, I hit a milestone yesterday with the pro- my main project that I've been working on and have referred to a little bit through the year. I started late last year. And just fell down, you know, I don't know what kind of hole it was. but And it actually, it turned into an amazing R&D adventure. And as I had mentioned, I have solved a fundamental problem in computer science, which has never been solved before. As far as I know, I mean, it is an invention. It is completely unique. It is dramatically more efficient than any other approach for solving this problem. And I will be, I'm not going to patent it or claim any IP. I'm going to get it documented and we'll do a podcast on it. Um, And this is my solution for finding in really, really large corpuses, which is to say, you know, big blobs of text, the longest strings that repeat with the anywhere in them in these corpuses without knowing what they are. And there are, there are as well-established solutions, but they are only toy solutions. You can only do them on small little data sets because they just completely collapse and break. They, they do not scale. And I've come up with a brand new solution that no one has ever seems to have seen before. I haven't, and none of the other smart guys who have been following this have for like really solving this problem. Um, then I was trying to figure out how I could explain this because it, there's a lot to it. And I, what I realized was I needed, I, I couldn't do it in one podcast. I needed to establish some additional foundation that we've never had before, which is sort of back to our basics. We, our list, longtime listeners will remember that we did a series of, how computers work sort of from first principles up, you know, starting at the beginning, we we went through the entire evolution of the the way computers function. And I stopped at the instruction set as like, okay, now we're there, like different types of instructions that we talked about CISC and RISC and so forth. But the next layer above that, 
which is below solutions but above instructions are data structures. That is pointers, arrays, records, stacks, trees, and lists. That is, these are the things that computer scientists have come up with which which are implemented sort of universally in any on any computer in using any instruction set to sort of create the first layer of abstraction above the instructions yet they are universally applicable to all kinds of problems so like you know anyone who's gone through computer science has learned about pointers arrays records stacks trees and lists these are and you know all those words leo you know these are fundamental ways like fundamental tools which you use for solving for 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 then solving problems using those and so we will first do a series of podcasts not, not a long one maybe two podcasts i think ought to be enough to cover those because i have used those and i realize i can't just i can't bring all of that information along and what my lrs is longest repeating string technology does at once so we've got a bunch of fun pod- podcasts here uh in our near future you know, I, uh, I, it's uh, why would you? What I see that it's a problem. You know, people want to solve, but why? What would you, what would you do with the longest repeating string substring? Well, why I would you got search it, for that? I got into this because I've got completely disorganized spinwright testimonials, and the, when, when I when I share them with our listeners every week, I'll sometimes I'll move them like into a big list I've been collecting. But there's a bunch of them already on this on the website. There's a ton that are still in email. There's a bunch I've never found that are in the Security Now mailbag. And my concern is I want to pull them all together and then eliminate duplication. I don't want to have any that are in there twice. And so, but sometimes, for example, before I read them, I'll ch- fix some grammar or I'll change the, the, you know, the spelling of spinrite if it was W-R-I-T-E, for example. So I don't, I'm not going to get exact matching. I needed soft matching of like phrases. And but if you did then, shortest repeating string, you'd get a lot of periods, spaces, A, B, C, Ds, and Es. So you want longest because that's, that's the biggest match. Correct. Yeah. Exactly. The, yeah. lo- the longest matches. But then... Other people who have, you know, had insights said, wait a minute, Steve, you can use this for DNA matching. Oh, for lots I mean, of things, yeah. A- and it turns out for instantly decrypting texts in unknown dead languages. If you dump a text into this, it'll instantly find all the words and all the phrases using repeating series of words. I mean, it just organizes, you know, disorganized stuff instantly. Well, not instantly, but like in a practical speed, and nothing like this exists. Even in, even in grep and, and things like that, they they don't do that, huh? No, because you have to know what you're looking for. This here, you don't have to know. It finds the patterns for you. I cannot wait. It's very cool. So, wait. speaking of spinwright testimonials, I had a really fun story um, from a Christian Alexandrov in Sofia City, Bulgaria. And he said, hi, Steve, I want to share a spinwright story with Security Now listeners. My cousin was traveling on her way home in her car when she hit a pothole. Apparently, this was a big pothole. Maybe they have big potholes in Bulgaria. 
and broke the suspension on her right front wheel. The car lost control and spun off the road. Good news first, no human casualties. Bad news second, her laptop took a pretty good hit. The plastic body was full of cracks. She came to me and said, I gave the laptop on a few PC repair services, but all said it is already dead. I'm desperate. See if you can bring it back from the dead. He says, I was looking at this broken laptop and gave up any hope on it. Anyway, I tried to boot on battery, no boot. The battery was broken badly. I disposed of it. I tried to boot on its charger. I got luck, but not much. It gave me blank black screen and a few minutes later failed attempt to find OS. So I used Spinrite on level two, but no luck. I was about to tell her this corpse is dead beyond resurrection. Then it hit me like lightning. I ran Spinrite on level one to get the drive to know itself again and force it to take action on itself using the tip you had recently mentioned and suggested on Security Now. After level one completed, I tried to boot. And at least now I was not waiting for a few minutes to try to boot. It started to boot normally, and I saw the BSOD saying unmountable boot volume. I got upset, and I decided to go full force. I ran spin right at level four. It took 96 hours straight to finish the drive, reporting a lot of green R icons and few red U icons. So many sectors recovered and a few at least partially recovered. I ran Spinrite again on level four, and now it only took a few hours to finish the entire drive. I saw a lot of B icons, meaning that Spinrite had marked those sectors bad, but relocated the data, on all places where the R and U icons were before. I grabbed the chance and quickly backed up the entire movies folder. This was the only folder my cousin desperately needed saved. So I saved this folder to my PC. When I checked its contents, I was stunned when I saw that it was in, that it was in, stunned when I saw what was in there. The complete first three seasons of Farscape (laughs) on high quality, on high quality. Thank goodness we didn't lose it. We didn't lose those grasshoppers or whatever they were on Farscape. They were strange creatures. Needless to say, I kept a copy for me to enjoy a fine sci-fi series. I disposed of the hard drive of this laptop, bought and installed a new one, reinstalled Windows, and copied back the movie folder. My cousin was as happy as she could be. Thanks to you, Steve, I have the chance to enjoy a fine sci-fi series. If we get to meet face-to-face, I promise I will buy you a bottle of red wine on my expense. The finest Cabernet I can find on Bulgarian market, regardless of the price. Thank you, Steve, for this great piece of software. And thank you, Steve and Leo, for the great Security Now podcast. I wish best of luck to you, GRC.com and TwitTV from a happy Spinrite user. 
Well, so, I, uh, I just hope you turned the BitTorrent client back on when he restarted the machine. That's all. <laughs> so thanks for sharing that, Christian. That's pretty funny. Hey, we're going to take a break. We uh, have 10 questions for Mr. Gibson, and we will get to those, your questions, Steve's answers in just a moment. But first, a word from our friends at Ford Motor Company. Maybe uh, with that broken axle, uh, his girlfriend be interested in a new Ford. How about the electric Ford, the 2012 Ford Focus Electric? It's here. I've been waiting. I love it. I love it when new technology comes out. And this, I mean, talk about technology. This is probably the most high-tech car Ford or anybody has ever built. Uh, state-of-the-art in, in many ways. For instance, uh, state-of-the-art batteries that give it things like the best-in-class 240-volt charge time. Four hours, three to four hours when you're using the optional 240-volt uh, home charging station from Leviton. Three to four hours for, from zero to fully charged. The best in-class driving range, 76 miles. Amazing. 110 MPGE, that's the new uh, equivalent MPGs for electric vehicles. 110 MPGE, that's the best city rating in its class. I think a tricycle would have to, you'd have to use something like a trike to get a better rating. It's rated the most fuel-efficient five-passenger vehicle in America. Never needs an oil change because it's amazing. And by the way, the torque, these amazing electric motors, the torque uh, on this thing is incredible. The pickup. And they use regenerative braking, of course, which has been tuned to be super efficient. It captures over 90% of the energy lost during braking and puts it right back in the battery. Um, of course, the sync with my Ford Touch is customized for unique EV features. You can maximize your range. You can get... Uh, the most eco-friendly driving route. You can remotely control vehicle charge and preconditioning settings using a, a smartphone app. Monitor your battery's state of charge. Maximize your energy efficiency. There's even a value charging feature powered by Microsoft that allows uh, focused drivers to take advantage of off-peak or reduced rates from the utility for charging. And it's very simple. You just press a button, basically, and it knows it does the rest. You have got to take a look at this. The 2012 Ford Focus Electric. Just go and visit one at an EV-certified Ford dealer near you. Drive one, as they say. Uh, or find out more at Ford.com slash technology. And then, I almost hate to even mention this, but then in 2013, the plug-in hybrids arrive. The 2013 Ford Fusion Energy Plug-in Hybrid. And that's gonna that's projected to receive, achieve a combined fuel efficiency rating of over 100 mpge. Unbelievable! So get the Ford Focus Electric now or early next year. The I think I'm going to get the Ford Fusion Energy plug-in hybrid is so convenient because you use battery on the on the you know short trips, long trips. You've got a gas engine in there too. What a great idea! Check it out today at a Ford dealer near you. Drive. The new 2012 Ford Focus Electric. And we thank Ford for their support of uh, security now. They're very security conscious, by the way, Steve. I asked them um, because, you know, when you have a computer system in a car, which, is, you know, sync is in my Ford uh, It makes me nervous. you yeah. got to separate it from the, um, the driving computer. And so they have separate computers. Good. It's very interesting how they do it all. They're very smart. Uh, back we go to the Q&A or to, we, to the Q&A we go. Starting with our first question from Michael Dombrowski. He is a smart kid, a high school sophomore in Washington, D.C. And uh, he, it, we were talking about ARM versus x86. And then he wants to know about Windows 7 and 8. First of all, love the show and watch every week as well as the past two weeks of the Sugar Hill series. I wish I'd get my 
high school student to uh, to watch that. Uh, he loves his French fries, and I hate I, every time he sees it. That like pains me. I see him eating them. That pains me. Yeah. He says, "I've been thinking this through in my head for a while. I wanted to t- wanted you to tell me if I'm right or wrong or crazy." I was thinking that because the Intel x86 architecture and ARM both have the same fundamentals, you know, and, or, nor gates, would it not be possible to map all of the x86 functions into the reduced set that ARM offers? In other words, get to CISC from RISC? I remember you saying that in the fundamentals of computing that x86 just kept building in calls for things like multiplication, for example, and that ARM had a limited number of these, but because they both must run in the same kind of logic gates... Then could someone not implement in hardware or software an x86 to ARM translator? From what I know, which is limited as far as hardware is concerned, this would be possible. It may take a lot of work, but for someone like Microsoft, maybe no big deal. Sorry for the length of this email. I wanted you to understand my question and make it as clear as possible. Thank you for all that you do. I feel I'm getting a comp sci class even before I go to college, Michael. So that's very clever and is absolutely been done historically um that there are two things there are two approaches that could be taken for example you could literally perform a static translation where you take a program written in one instruction set like x86 and instruction by instruction convert each CISC, the complex instruction set instruction, into the equivalent series of risk instructions and and essentially do a, a static translation from one instruction set language into another. So that can be done. But what has what has ended up being done is a variation on that, and that is an emulator. And emulations exist all over the place because it's ended up being a a powerful thing to do. In fact, historically, you'll remember, Leo, back in the days of the early Pascal with P code, um, the the Pascal compiler generated a pseudocode, which is what the P stood for, P-S-E-U-D-O, pseudocode, for an imaginary computer that didn't even exist. And then somebody who wanted to run Pascal on a given host platform, on a given computer, they would write an interpreter in the native machine language of that processor, which interpreted the pseudo-instructions that the Pascal compiler produced. And the beauty was that you had a huge library of of Pascal programs. And in fact, the actual environment for editing and compiling Pascal was written in itself, in Pascal. So when you when you simply wrote this this layer, this interpreter to interpret P code, as it was called, suddenly everything works. You get all the programs, all the software, and a little operating system that's ready to go and and does go. So it's certainly the case, for example, that that Windows could have been left in x86 architecture, but Microsoft could have implemented an 
an x86 emulator which would run on the arm architecture and emulate the x86 instructions one by one the problem with doing that is performance because you're you're not directly executing the native instructions there is that layer that emulation or interp- interpretation layer and there's a big performance hit i mean it's it varies depending upon how closely the architectures map into each other if the arm for example had enough registers to simulate the x86 registers then that would help but if if the architecture didn't then you'd have to simulate registers in memory so suddenly you can see that would be a lot slower than than emulating registers that were in the actual hardware architecture so to the degree that there's mismatch between what the architectures do it that creates more friction sort of between them and since windows is almost 100% if not now 100% written in high level language c c++ or other abstractions of of c and c++ it's very easy comparatively just to recompile the existing high level language implementation of windows rather than using an x86 compiler you use the now very mature arm compilers and you end up with windows running directly natively on the arm architecture so mike yes it absolutely can be done has been done there's a history of it you know um a java that we talk about often is a so-called virtual machine the java virtual machine the jvm is the java compiler produces again this so-called bytecode or you know a a a specific sort of virtual language and then you have different virtual machines jvms one for the x86 on windows one for the x86 on mac one for the old power pc on mac and so forth and then when you implement that jvm the virtual machine all javaness runs on top of it so it makes porting and portability very nice at a cost of performance that you can't get around but sometimes that's a trade-off that really does make sense so you could you could cross compile which would be kind of a one time only translation or you, you really could, do could. What, or what you're doing which is kind of an on the fly as you go real time translation that's the interpretation it's a little slower but it's a little more flexible obviously well i guess the way yeah the way to think about this is if you were to cross compile you then you're taking that's like the, a one time translation right but you the way to think of it in terms of the result is you're taking windows that was written in c that was compiled through a compiler to x86 and then compiling it again into a compiler that compiles x86 into arm right so if you did not have access for example to the original windows source code then that would be really your only alternative but since when microsoft does have access to windows source code and there is a c compiler for the arm they don't have to go through like a two stage inefficient compiling process they just go one stage they just recompile right. windows in c directly to the arm architecture and then you have as in all code you have some um, 
tweak stuff that's written in assembler and you would just translate that by hand or uh... right the, the, in, in windows it's the how the the so-called hardware abstraction layer is the the layer which is intimately familiar with what windows with with the platform that it runs on it knows about you know the way pcs deal with you know, PCI and USB and timers and interrupts and all that, that's like the real nitty-gritty interaction with the hardware. And so you'd have to rewrite the HAL in in ARM assembler, but that's a small portion of what has become the behemoth that we know as Windows. <laughs> and you'd probably do that by hand because it's a small you have amount good, of code. You'd have good guys who do it. Right, yeah. right. You, you put your best talent there because everything runs through there right. and depends on it. Right, right. Chris Waters, somewhere in the U.S., wonders how secure are aging Linksys wireless routers. Greetings. I don't believe you've addressed the following on your fine podcast. If so, I apologize. I have a Linksys WRT54G, a classic, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, version 8.0, it has the latest firmware, but it's from October 2009. It's at least five years old or more. Is there anything inherently insecure... With continuing to use it, the router seems to work well. It locks up every few weeks, necessitating a reboot, cycling the power. I preemptively reboot it every week. Googling this problem indicates it's quite common. Any ideas as to what is causing it and how to prevent it? I've considered installing alternate firmware, DDWRT. In fact, this is the classic router for DDWRT or Tomato. I'm in, unsure how secure these alternatives are. What do you think? So my sense is that our wireless router technology is enough of a moving target that it really does make sense to stay current. We've been talking about and will be talking about buffer bloat in the past and in the future. Here you've got firmware that's, as you said, Leo, four or five years old and you know, we're finding little little edge case problems with, for example, uh, the uh, wireless, uh, you know, easy config technology, which we would be nice to have Cisco update for their Linksys firmware. But this is probably an abandoned piece of hardware, whereas it by no means has been abandoned by the DDWRT people or the Tomato folks. And Tomato is a, you know, beautiful, thriving, living community and state-of-the-art piece of software. Um, and when solutions to um, the buffer, buffer bloat problem occur, they will be implemented immediately in these third-party firmwares for those routers. So I'd, I'd vote for making the jump. I'd, you know, uh, look into which one makes the most sense for you. I don't really have an opinion between those. I like tomato. Not being, I, and that's what I thought. I thought yeah, you did. I like I, that's tomato. what I was going to say. Uh, and it's, it, there's, I mean, that's everything good about tomato. And it, it will be kept current. And if things evolve in the future, which, you know, require change or updates like the buffer bloat problem and, and the solution that we now have in test, essentially, um, and I'm gonna, we'll be doing a podcast on that shortly. It'll be available in Tomato very yeah, quickly. Yeah. So I'd say make the move, Chris. And that's a you know that's a classic router. That's actually the router, as if my memory serves, that they recommend for both DDWRT and Tomato. It's a it's it's yeah. actually valuable because it's so easily hacked. 
Um, and does have one advantage, Steve, that newer routers may not have. No WPS. It doesn't have any of those kind of fancy uh, built-in nice. built-in things. At You're some, right. You know, that, that might be an advantage. Now, at some point, I do want to uh, uh, talk about the new 802.11ac with you. And if you want to do a show on that, I would, I would welcome it. Uh, the new standard is out. Buffalo and uh, Netgear have both shipped AC routers. I actually have the Buffalo router. Um, and it has some real advantages. You know, it's much faster. It's very interesting. Unfortunately, the Buffalo router also has WPS on it. Mm. But, yep. uh, <laughs> but uh, at some point, if you'd, love to, if you'd like to talk about it, I'd love to hear it. Cool. Uh, David, uh, and I'm not sure how, it looks like his name's been mangled a little bit here with the Unicode. David... Uh, Garcia Abad in Basque country of Spain wonders about encryption for the ultra paranoid. Steve, I've been a listener to the podcast for about two years, and although I will not go into detail about how fun it is for me to listen to, oh, please, David, go right ahead. I have to admit two things. Leo and you have made my commute time much more enjoyable. And if Leo ever decided to charge money for the podcast, I would pay for it. Hmm. I'm that hooked. I just wanted to know your opinion about a very simple idea. Say you have some very confidential data and that you want to make as sure as possible that no one will ever be able to crack it. Not even the Utah-based super-cracking mega-facility. Oh, he does listen. How would you proceed? Being ultra-paranoid, this is the approach I would take, nothing fancy. First, encrypt the plain text with AES-256 using key 1. Then, encrypt the resulting ciphertext with a 448-bit blowfish using key 2. Then, encrypt the resulting ciphertext with a 256-bit surfeit cipher using key 3, and etc., etc., etc. You get the idea. Um, Is that the end of it? I can't tell. Uh, Let me uh, shrink this down. It's kind of a... Matryoshka doll approach to encryption using different algorithms and different keys. If one of the keys gets compromised or cracked, well, we still have the others. If one of the algorithms is found to be weak over time, well, we still have the others. I know this is not the most original or convenient thing in the world. I just want to know your opinion about this possibility. Thank you for the show. So, okay. Uh, this is, this sort of is interesting because from a, from a strict script crypto standpoint... Uh, it raises the question, and one well, one of the options in TrueCrypt, the the whole drive and and file encryption technology that we like so much, one of, you know it's got options for serializing the encryption algorithms using more than just one, just for this purpose, for the for the concern that not so much keys leaking, but that's that's certainly a valid point too, but that at some point in the future, there might be some vulnerability found in any of like in the one ciphertext algorithm, in the one, in the one crypto algorithm you were using, um, the one cipher, and that would then weaken your position. But if you used two or three or four, then, 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 no one weakness would cause a problem. So, so part of David's question is, does daisy-chaining ciphers in series using completely different and unrelated keys, because that's certainly what you'd have to do too, 
Does that scale your security? And the answer is yes, absolutely, 100%, 200%, 300%, whatever. I mean, it's, it's at, at, it, is, it is absolutely the case that, that you end up with the, the multiplicative effect, really, not even additive, multiplicative of one cipher followed by another, followed by another, each using unrelated to each other keys. You essentially just keep summing up the, the key lengths and you end up with a ridiculously long key and you have a, a cipher strength equal to the total bit length of all these unrelated keys implemented with, you know, taking chunks of that in different, completely unrelated ciphers driven by that portion of the mega key um, and then feeding it into the next. So you've ended up with something insanely powerful, but at a performance cost. And it's why, for example, when I set up TrueCrypt, I simply use AES-256. TrueCrypt now uses Intel's instruction set support so it's even faster than it was before and that instruction set support only works for AES-256 so that gets accelerated the other things don't and I've looked at and torn apart and we did a podcast on AES-256 and I mean everything to me looks like it was nailed so so while yes you can always scale your crypto beyond reason to no end, I mean, to without limit, I guess I ask why. Once you have enough, then more is just more cumbersome and slower. It's not clear that if it's unbreakable, it can be more unbreakable. You know, if you've got infinity, then you <laughs> can't do plus. infinity plus one, plus one, yes. <laughs> Sam Korn in McChesney Park poses two practical questions about the DMARC email security we talked about yesterday. Uh, one, what, if anything, will Google Apps customers need to do to enable DMARC? And two, what would need to be done for PHP mail scripts? Okay, so we didn't talk about that, which is why I like Sam's question. Um, customers would need to do nothing because this is inherently a server-to-server technology where servers which are accepting email from other servers will authenticate that sending server's identity in order to believe the email that they're receiving. So customers at each end, that is to say clients, the clients of their of those servers just their, their clients don't need to change because they've established independently their authentication with their own home server they you know you log into gmail using your strong credentials to say i am me or you log in to your corporate email server with your email client saying i am me you know, very often, if it's a corporate email server, it's inside the, the, cor- the company's firewall. And so no one else has access to it as a client except people there inside the firewall. It's not like if you're using 
uh, POP protocol and port uh, 110, that's not available from the outside. So no non-local clients can even access it from a client standpoint. And then that server connects to uh, the, you know, the destination email server in order to authenticate the transaction and send the mail. Now, as for PHP mail scripts, mail scripts could operate two ways. They could operate as a client or they could operate as an SMTP server. Uh, receiving connections on port 25, which is SMTP's default port, or sending, you know, send, uh, connecting to other servers on port 25, in which case that PHP mail script is being a store and forward architecture, not, it's not being a POP client that you can, that where it's connecting to another hosting SMTP server as a client. In that case, it itself would need to implement the the DKIM and SPF architecture protocols that we talked about last week. So um, either they exist now or they will for a, a, as popular a language as PHP. If there is a need for it, you know, all the crypto backbone is already in place for PHP. You can get crypto libraries. And so... You know, either a, a talented PHP programmer could implement those protocols using the libraries, and they're really not that difficult to do, or, you know, wait a while and somebody else will do it, and you'll just be able to import the library and be a DMARC-compatible server if that's really what you want to do, um, you know, in your own language. So, you know, it's, you know, users get to ride for free, and, you know, if... If programmers want to tackle it, all the docs are solid and, and available. Cool. Question five. Dominic Black in England talking about those older uh, security protocols, SPF and DKIM, does not, he says, they don't prevent domain spoofing, but they help. You said in last week's Security Now that a folder saying authenticated mail would be great as you could, you know, trust it. But I counter that saying you can't anyway. For instance, with PayPal.com, what is there stopping me from, say, buying PAYPAI.com, then capitalizing the I? It looked like PayPal.com and most browsers and email clients. I would set up all the SPF DKIM settings on my PayPal.com account. And my fake email would now appear in your authenticated mail folder. It would point you at the fake site which I would design and look exactly like the real one, apart from an EV certificate. But then again, someone in theory could get an EV for a fake domain. Because of your authenticated folder, now you are more likely to trust my email than you would have been. It's authenticated, but authenticated to a spoof address, I guess. Further, yep. to, the, further to this, could we simply not use high ASCII characters and Unicode characters now that the domain name system supports it and buy domains with characters which look incredibly close? What can you do to prevent that? Huh? Yeah, he's right. I mean, the this is not something. This is sort of the 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 human factors side of this problem, and with I don't see a solution for it. I know, for example, that PayPal has themselves proactively. I mean, just you know, to use Dominic's example, proactively grabbed similar domains to prevent this problem. Um, to what degree they can, but they, you know, but this is just Dominic's example. It could be any domain where you're able to create something that looks 
deceptively similar. And I mean, and his logic is thorough. I mean, this is the lot, the kind of logic we develop on this podcast over time is that, you know, by, by creating authentication and then abusing the authentication, we end up making a claim, which if you misunderstand the claim appears to be stronger than if you hadn't made it in the first place. <laughs> um, so, you know, it's a very good point. Uh, it's not a problem that I can see uh, any means of solving. You know, at some point, the user is responsible for looking at what's going on and being careful. But, uh, you know, I, I did, I, I felt I had to bring this up. It was mentioned some point. weeks ago by a good friend of mine. Yeah. And, uh, it, you know, Dominic is exactly right. It's merely authenticating to the phony uh, domain. Right. Uh, Ghislain in Espeluche, France, wonders if SKIM and SPF, why all the spam? I think he means DKIM. On the DMARC yeah. podcast, you said that 80% of the mail volume is currently using either SPF or DKIM, but everyone agrees that 90% of the mail volume is spam. So doesn't this mean that almost all of the spam is already SPF and DKIM compliant? Therefore, this kind of authentication doesn't fix anything. And we're really making all this bother for no result at all. Am I missing something in reading those stats? Also, I can say that DKIM is a real pain to configure right. Regards, Gislain. So, um, I think I was probably not clear. It's 80% of the valid email volume is currently either SPF ah. or DKIM. Um, and the problem is... That even so, we're not trusting it yet. This is the whole point of DMARC. And, you know, and, and Gislan uh, mentions that it's a real pain to configure right. He's, he is correct. Um, you know, I, that's why I haven't done it yet. Um, I don't have a DKIM compliant email server. My next one will be, as I mentioned, but I do have SPF configured. However, I don't know if people are blocking spoofed email from grc.com because there's no way for me to get reports. And I don't know when I do configure DKIM unless it were for DMARC support, I want that feedback that it is, you know, don't block this, but send me reports. So it, it's really clear to me that DMARC is a step forward, but it won't be until we have enough confidence in the system that we are then willing to block e email that doesn't meet the requirements. We know, for example, that PayPal, as I mentioned last week, has relationships with Yahoo and Gmail where they said, we want you to block anything. We're going to take responsibility for authenticating anything, everything that comes from us, period, for the benefit of, of you know, ruling out any similar spam but the rest of the industry has been like, well, you know, we're not really sure about this. It seems like a good thing, but how do we test it? And DMARC brings testing and then we'll, we'll I'm sure with time, bring, I mean, it will just, the email world will switch to a point, to, or to a mode where everything is blocked and things will be better. Not perfect, again, as our prior questioner mentioned, but better. And, you know, we don't want to let better be the enemy of perfect so getting you know being better is worth worthwhile too 
Question seven from Bob Carnheim in Oak Ridge, Tennessee, who says, I'm going to belabor the point. I've been wanting to bring this up for a while now, so I hope this may come to your attention. When I heard Charles Hill's question in the last Q&A, I thought, okay, I'll get my answer. Alas, just as Charles thought you missed the point that Glenn Budman, the... Gleb Budman. Is that really his name? Gleb Budman? I know. It is. <laughs> Try to say that three times. Back. It's not easy. Just as you, just as you, Steve, missed the point that Gleb Budman, the Backblaze CEO, was making, I think you're missing the point Charles was making, which is this. Your Jungle Disk S3 solution, which I also use, is not integrated, and there is no inherent TNO encryption in the S3 bucket. So you are counting on the TNO encryption the Jungle Disk client application is assumed to provide. This assumed TNO is provided by the optional encryption key you type into the JD Jungle Disk client settings. But how do you know the client is not transmitting that key to the Jungle Disk HQ or Rackspace or Amazon or the National SA Spy Administration? I've been using this solution ever since you described it way back when, but it always bothered me. I would think that the only way you could be sure your key isn't being transmitted off your box is to have a separate machine in line between your box and the Internet that is watching all the packets for your encryption key to fly by. But even then, if they encrypt your key, the analyzing box wouldn't be able to recognize it. So did you or could you disassemble and reverse engineer the client app and analyze it to positively determine that it is not sending out your key in any form or fashion? Thank you, Bob. Hmm. So... This, Leo, is why you love open source. Because it makes the claims potentially provable. Uh-huh. I agree. Yeah. I oh, say I'm, I'm, crypto should be always should be open source. Otherwise, you don't know. The TrueCrypt application that we love is open source. People can look at it and, and have at it. Now, I would argue that... It's a function of trade-offs. Now, you know, TrueCrypt was designed by a bunch of nice people who went to a huge amount of work to create a great solution. And we thank them for it. Maybe we donate money. I've supported them several times because I, I wanted to keep going and, and stay alive um, and, and be current. Um, and so maybe that's the model that allows this to work. But if, if I were going to do a crypto solution and invest a substantial length of my time in it, it would be commercial and it would be closed source. I'd be happy to document the protocol and the technology um, and, you know, and do everything I can to demonstrate the, the way I have designed it to work, but it, it can't be open source if, I'm, if it's also going to be commercial because, you know, I want to sell these things. So... You know, does that mean I don't do a really valuable crypto product? No. No, but people uh, trust means, you. Exactly. And and so Bob is absolutely right. I did not reverse engineer Jungle Disk, but I did speak to Jungle Dave. Um, I think we had him on the podcast, in fact, years ago. I think we did, yeah. And it's, you know, I, I was completely convinced enough that it's it's what I trust and use to use his solution. Now we just talked about a different open source that that um, uh, Duplicati, right. which is open source, a front end for S three, 
very cool looking solution. Um, I don't know if it's going to move me from Jungle Disk. I'll take a look at it. But, you know, so, so we are seeing alternatives. Um, my feeling is if it's, if it's open source, then you're still trusting that somebody else, presumably other than you, has looked at it and not found anything wrong with it. But I guarantee you, if somebody wanted to bury something in there that was being misbehaving, they could do so such that your visual scrutiny of it couldn't locate it. And also, you're ultimately knowing that it's open source, but you're using a pre-compiled XE. So the only way to really satisfy yourself is really to write it from scratch yourself, which is probably not practical, or really go over it yourself with a fine-tooth comb, and then you compile that source into an XE which you use. Anything short of that, then you're trusting people. There, I mean, there. my point is there's always going to be some trust. And, of course, we've got the operating system platform that everything runs on. We assume Microsoft is, you know, isn't playing games. That's a good point. Even if you have open source software, the OS might be uh, involved in yeah, it's ultimately mm-hmm. also there, yeah. you know. So, uh, you or know, your internet so, service provider. No, I guess it's encrypted by the time it gets there. So yeah, but but yeah. but you know the the OS you're calling APIs to do all this work for you, asking it for things like pseudo random numbers. Well, what if it generated special Microsoft pseudo random numbers and they knew what they were? So again, you know, it's you, we do at some point we have to trust, um, unless you go out into the beach and get some silicon in a bucket and bring it back to your garage and start smelting it and purifying it. Oh, come on. We don't have to start all the way back. <laughs> hey, uh, before we get to questions 8, 9, and 10, let me talk a little bit briefly about squarespace.com. If you're building a website, uh, you could you could get the silicon from the beach like Steve does. Or, I mean, literally writes his own website in assembly. But for the rest of us, there is Squarespace. Great hosting plus great software means security because they maintain it all. It's managed so you don't have to worry about it. They patch it. They keep an eye on it. Uh, it's much more secure than running your own server, I got to say, and faster and easier too. And boy, is it affordable. Visit squarespace.com right now. Click the uh, green button on the site that says try it today free and just put your name, your email address the name of a site and a password, and you're ready to go. No, notice no credit card number necessary. You can even uncheck the box, and you won't get emails from Squarespace if you don't want them. And then start playing with those great templates. If you if you know CSS and JavaScript, don't worry. You have absolute control of what you're doing, but you just don't have to. They also have great workshops. If you go to workshops.squarespace.com, you'll see these incredible seminars they do. They're live in real time, and they're free, and they cover everything you need to know about making the most of your Squarespace site. You could try that, too. It's all free at squarespace.com. Then, if you decide to buy, take a look at these prices. $8 a month when you buy a year package for the basic site. For 16 bucks a month with the year package, you get a lot more. That's the unlimited package, unlimited pages, unlimited bandwidth, unlimited storage, and in both cases, with the year package, you get a free custom domain. They'll even do the wiring 
behind the scenes for you so that that custom domain goes right to your Squarespace site. Free. And I'm going to give you a special deal. If you use the offer code SECURITYNOW5, SECURITYNOW5, you'll get 10% off that first purchase. So get the year-long $16 a month package and you will, uh, you'll save the most. Squarespace.com, what a great way to start your website. If you're a photographer, they've got photo galleries. They've got uh, plugins for all the social media, importing and exporting from all of the major blog APIs, including WordPress, Movable Type, Blogger, and TypePad. And that includes everything, links, pictures, comments, everything's preserved. So you lose nothing in and out so you're never trapped. These guys are good guys who know what they're doing, who made great software, and I want you to use it today. Squarespace.com. Great hosting, great software. Squarespace.com. And don't forget to use the offer code SECURITYNOW5 to save 10% off your plan. The secret to exceptional websites. Squarespace.com. Question 8 from Asher Silberman at Cal State Northridge. In uh, California, he's got a Layer 8 club. Hey, Steve, long-time listener, first-time writer. Started listening to Security Now back when it started. I was in middle school at the time and listened to it on my walks home. Wow, Asher. Because of you, I was explaining RSA encryption to my friends during gym class. Nerd. Now I am, but in a good way. Now I am a sophomore and colleges have started a computer security club at my school. We're calling it Layer 8. So far, we've entered into competitions and competed in the National Collegiate Cyber Defense Competition. That's cool. I didn't know that existed. That is really cool. And the National Cyber League, even without much practice, as the club just started. So I'm wondering, do you have any tips on resources for learning about security? Any ideas for activities we might do to teach our members over the coming school year? Asher, I'm so blown away. He says, thank you. Your podcast is a great inspiration. But Asher... Uh, you are a great inspiration. Isn't that a nice email? Well, and so I have a neat idea, Leo. All right. And Lash, uh, Asher, here's your project. Uh, something I've been intending to do but have never gotten around to is to take a look at all the things we've talked about and all the security technology over the years and come up with a single comprehensive best practices oh, doc- Wouldn't document. that be useful? And we'll have Asher and his club on the podcast to present it. Great assignment. Great assignment. I love it. Best so practices. What, yep. What, what, what should people do? How should they behave? What tools make the most sense, easy to use, most comprehensive and so forth? The whole club will have to, you know, pull together and, and answer those questions, distill it down to, you know, what you know what people need to do to be secure and what to use and uh and asher i'll i'll uh, get an email back to you with a way to contact me and uh and we'll have you and or your club you guys can gather around a microphone or appoint a spokesperson and uh, we'll have you present your results uh, on the podcast and it would be for uh, end users not you don't have to worry about enterprise or servers or that kind of thing just right it's end for users moms running Moms and dads running Windows or Mac, best practices. Yeah. Love it. What to do to stay secure on the net. That would be a very nice thing to have. Very handy. And I will publicize it on the Tech Guy, 
And we'll we'll uh, give you some space on the Twit site because I think that would be very useful. Yep. Love it. Great idea, Steve. Thank you. All right, Asher, your assignment, should you choose to accept it. <laughs> Walter Anthony in Climax, North uh, Carolina, explains how he's cloud-synced tabs at Firefox, just like the uh, cloud-syncing of tabs now offered in Chrome 19. Uh, I just want to let you know I've been using Firefox for a couple of years uh, now in a manner that syncs my home and work PCs. All of my bookmarks, history, and tabs are synced between the two. I just run Portable Firefox from PortableApps.com in my Dropbox. Oh, that's clever. Mm-hmm. That's clever. As a result, you know, because Dropbox copies that folder with everything in it, my tabs yep. are always in sync with history available for each tab. What a great idea. Yeah. I've also used the sync feature built into Firefox to sync tabs, history preferences, etc. across machines. This has the added feature uh, of allowing my wife and me to both use individual versions of Firefox on the same Windows 7 computer login account. Mine is the portable version. Hers is the desktop install. Walt Anthony, U.S. Navy, retired. That's a great idea. Yep. I wanted to share that. I thought that was I really love great. that. Yeah. And that would work with uh, G Drive and uh, anything that allows you to sync a folder between uh, multiple machines. Yeah. Portable apps is a, is a great solution because it's modified the apps so that they're, all of their tendrils are are contained within you know a, a, a defined location, basically making the app behave really you know in a in a in a self-contained fashion. So what a great uh, idea. just beautiful solution. Finally, Troy Asheville, North Carolina, with the welcome Firefox add-on tip of the week. Steve, I've taken all of your advice since security now number one, and now have moved from Firefox three point six to twelve. But our beloved permit cookie add-on no longer works. So I wanted you and your listeners to give you and your listeners a heads up that the add-on cookie whitelist with buttons works beautifully and the same way that permit cookies did. Just thought I'd let you know. Keep up the good work. Thank you. So it's Many, called, Go ahead. Yeah, it's called, it's called, it's, believe me, that's the whole name. Cookie whitelist with buttons. Yay. And, you know, and they refer to themselves as CWWB on their, on their page. And uh, I used to be using permit cookies. Many of our listeners who were more cookie conscious were using it. And we were all shedding tears and sending notes to each other. It's like, oh, no, it's broken. Permit cookies no longer works. And sure enough, it died with 11 or maybe before, but I, you know, I, well, I wasn't switching before. But when I finally did, it's like, oh, yeah, it doesn't work. Um, and so the good news is Firefox has a, cooking white a cookie whitelist facility built in, but it's very cumbersome to go and diddle around and poke, you know, and navigate through the multi-layer UI to get there. So what these guys have done is they've simply surfaced the things you want to do most with the existing Firefox cookie management onto a couple of toolbar buttons. So just like permit cookies, you're able to say, you know, blanket deny cookies, yet when you want to offer, when you want cookies for this session only, you can click it. Or if you want to add it, a, a site to the permanent cookie permissions whitelist, then you, you click a different button. So I know that a huge number of listeners who are mourning the passing of permit cookies uh, now have an alternative, the cookie whitelist with buttons. Woohoo! <laughs> 
And that concludes all 10 questions and answers from Steve Gibson. Uh, we do these uh, Q&A episodes every other episode, so we'll be doing it again next uh, in a couple of weeks. So you can, if you have a question or a follow-up, go to grc.com slash feedback and ask a question there. GRC is the place where Steve lives. That means that's where you can get Spinrite, the world's best hard drive, maintenance and recovery utility. You can also get all of his great freebies, his little apps. Uh, and the podcast is there. He makes two special versions available, and they're available only at grc.com. One is the transcription version we talked about earlier, pure text, searchable. And the other is a 16-kilobit version. It doesn't sound great, but it is small. It has the virtue of being tiny. Now, for the video and the other versions, we have those at our website, twit.tv slash sn for security now. We do this show every Wednesday, 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 1800 UTC on twit.tv. We always welcome the live viewers. The chat room is very helpful, and it's just nice to have people watching us live. But, you know, as I said, we make it available after the fact in a variety of formats, so you can always get it afterwards, too. It's hard not to get it. <laughs> well, no, it's hard to get. <laughs> but it's not as hard to get as it might be or something. Steve, always a pleasure. Thank you so much for your uh, inspiration and your knowledge and uh, for your dietary inspiration, too. And we'll be back next week with uh, a next topic. I think I want to talk about this interesting little security problem which surfaced, which is how some firewalls are actually doing a bad thing that allows connection hijacking without being a man in the middle when they were intending to do a good thing. It's, it's, a, it's a very clever hack that some smart people have come up with that demonstrates that there, once you've got something that's wrong with a protocol, it's really not possible to fix it. Mm. And this is a problem with TCP mm-hmm. and the fact that sequence numbers are only 32 bits. Mm. We've had problems in the past with them only being 32 bits because they were guessable. And some clever people have figured out how to use that fact in a new way to allow connections to be hijacked and intercepted. So a great topic, which we will plow into next week. Fantastic. You are fantastic. I thank you, Steve Gibson. I thank everybody for joining us. We'll see you next time. Right here on Security Now. Thanks, Leo. Security Now.